The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Pure economic factors or technological factors or, you know, the level of economic development, the level of technological development cannot explain, you know, the diversity of inequality level and, and structure of inequality that we observe throughout history. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Thank you for listening to the Democracy Paradox, a podcast on democracy, democratization, and world affairs. Each week, you'll learn about big picture insights to better understand political issues and events. Oftentimes, I present complex ideas that might even be unfamiliar, so I always provide a complete transcript at democracyparadox.com. You can also support the podcast at Patreon for as little as $5 per month. Supporters have access to bonus materials like this week's conversation with Julia Azari. She is an associate professor of political science at Marquette University, a co-host of Politics in Question, and what I sometimes call a rock star political scientist. Her podcast is just an absolute great listen because her co-hosts are Lee Drutman and James Walner, who are also well-known political scientists. So check out Politics in Question and become a patron to support Democracy Paradox. You'll also get the chance to listen to bonus content with guests like Julia Azari. Now, today's guest is Thomas Piketty. Thomas is a professor at the Paris School of Economics and a co-director of the World Inequality Lab. Many listeners will already know him as the author of the books Capital in the 21st Century and Capital in Ideology. His new book is A Brief History of Equality. Thomas is among the foremost thinkers on economics, inequality, and politics in our time. I've mentioned his work a few times already in past episodes, so I was more than excited to have a chance to talk to him about his recent book. That said, here is my conversation with Thomas Piketty. Thomas Piketty, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thanks for your invitation. Well, Thomas, I am an enormous fan of your work, and I found your new book, A Brief History of Equality, very enjoyable. One vignette that really stood out to me, though, involved Haiti. Its revolution was a truly remarkable event, but your account focuses on events that come after its revolution. So I'd like to start there. I'd like to start with stories. Thomas, tell me about the debt that Haiti had to pay to France. Yeah, yes, this is quite an incredible uh, story. So what, what happened, you know, basically is that you, you have this slave revolt in um, uh, Saint-Domingue, you know, which was the name of Haiti uh, before the, the independence of Haiti. 
And so you have this slave revolt, which happens during the French Revolution, 1791. And, you know, this is a successful slave revolt. And, you know, that's, you know, one of the messages also of my book, of my brief history of equality is that, you know, the movement toward equality is not something that's just happening, you know, because the elite decides that it should happen or that is happening in a natural way, in any meaningful sense. You know, it happens out of social mobilization, social struggles. It starts very much, you know, at the end of the 18th century and, you know, the abolition of the privileges of the aristocracy and the slave revolt in, in Haiti are both, you know, the sort of starting point of a movement toward, you know, the end of societies based on privileges. So, you know, this is this long run perspective on the march toward equality that, that I'm trying to describe. Now, returning to the case of Haiti. You know, the, the French state and in particular, you know, the French elite of property owners, you know, including uh, people who used to own slaves in Haiti because Saint-Domingue was really the jewel of, of the French colonial empires. It was the highest concentration of slaves. You know, there were half a million slaves in Saint-Domingue, uh, much more than, uh, than in other uh, British slave islands in the Caribbean and much more at the time than in the south of the US. So this was really the center of, of the plantation of economy. And And French property owners, you know, were very unhappy to lose this property. So the deal that was decided at the end was that the French state, which was back to a monarchical state in, in 1815, and in 1825, the French monarchical state accepted to recognize the independence of Haiti with one condition, which was that Haiti had to repay to France a huge compensation in order to compensate uh, the French uh, slave owners for their loss of property. And so this was an enormous sum, you know, this was the equivalent of three years of national income of Haiti of 1825, we would say, you know, 300% of GDP, we would say today, which of course you cannot reimburse immediately because they did not have this money. So French bankers came in, you know, proposed to refinance the debt with a very high interest rate, you know, 7%, 8%. And in the end, the state of Haiti, you know, had to reimburse this debt between 1825 up until the 1950s, you know, the last recorded payment to the Bank of France was in 1957. So, you know, almost a century and a half, Haiti had to repay enormous payment to France in order to, you know, compensate French slave owners for their loss of property. And this is indeed, you know, quite an incredible episode for a number of reasons. You know, first, it shows, you know, the sort of very extreme sacralization of property that existed back in the days in the 19th century. This also shows that, you know, extreme concentration of property is intimately related to extreme concentration of power and, you know, very harsh social relations. So this is not a spontaneously harmonious social relation. You know, when you have this kind of extreme property relation, you know, that's extremely violent. And this also shows, you know, the kind of historical amnesia which we sometimes have because, you know, today, this is a story which, you know, people in France don't know uh, very well. Uh, people around the world don't know very well. And, you know, Very often when you tell the story to people and you tell them, as I believe that, you know, France, the French state today should actually pay a reparation to the state of Haiti for this exorbitant tribute that was extracted from Haiti during almost a century and a half. You know, many people say, oh, look, this was a long time ago. <laughs> That's complicated. 
Well, yes, it's complicated, but, you know, if you'd say, you know, that's too long ago, we cannot do anything, but at the same time, you still have compensation for expropriation of properties that happened during World War II or sometime even during World War I. You know, there are uh, property expropriation, including from very wealthy families, which we compensate today. And you tell to people of Haiti, uh, well, look, you made payment until the 1950s, which are very well documented. You know, nobody is questioning the reality of this payment. And, and if you'd say, okay, for you, it's too long, you know, you put yourself in a very complicated position because then when it comes to trying to build some universal norms of social and justice and global justice for the future, you know, you have to treat different injustices of the past, different uh, expropriation of the past in a way that is sort of more or less consistent. So, you know, it's complicated to set the right numbers. You know, I discussed this in my work. You know, it's not a reason not to do anything. You know, we need to trust at the end of the day, you know, democratic deliberation in order to define a collective norm of justice. And, you know, that's a general theme that I pursue in my, in my book. The specifics are complicated, but I think some of the basics are just that. They're pretty basic. They asked people in Haiti to be able to pay back the slaveholders who had done an injustice over the course of generations to their people, and then said, on top of that, you need to pay us and work for us effectively deep into what was, quote, unquote, their freedom. They were still working for those slaveholders all the way until 1957, as you say. And 1957, that's post-World War II era. You would think that we would have moved beyond that and recognized that People shouldn't have to repay somebody else for their freedom. What struck me the most, too, was how the Haitian Revolution comes on the tails of the French Revolution. It comes in an era where we begin to talk about equality. And the reparations begin in, I believe you had said, in 1820. And that's right about the point that you begin the tale of the convergence towards greater equality during the 19th and 20th centuries. It's during this exact period that the French and the Americans, too, are enforcing this debt payment upon a people that is exacerbating inequality throughout the world. It's remarkable, and it's very ironic. Yes, it is. Uh, but, you know, this is, this is uh, the legacy uh, that we have to confront. And, you know, I think the, the solution, again, you know, people who are alive today, you know, nobody is responsible, of course, for what happened 200 years ago. But at the same time, we are all responsible for taking into account this legacy into, you know, our thinking on how to build global justice and, and adequate reparation for the future. So, yeah, we have to take into account this legacy. But I understand that you are surprised. At the same time, you know, after World War II, you still have forced labor, uh, you know, including in the French colonies, you know, in Ivory Coast. In the, and you need to wait really after World War II. You know, it's only when the colonial power, you know, realize that, you know, they're going to lose the empire anyway, that they accept to put an end to forced labor. In the US, you know, you have to wait the 1960s to see the end of racial discrimination, you know, which is also a huge prejudice, you know, when your children cannot go to the same school as other children, cannot take the same bus. You know, it's a huge prejudice, which has never been compensated. You know, there are some cases of prejudices, like in the US, like the, you know, the Japanese Americans that were interned during World War II, which is a different kind of prejudice. 
much shorter, but you know, of course, very bad as well, which was compensated finally. You know, there was a law that was voted upon by U.S. Congress in 1988, you know, giving $20,000 for each Japanese American that was interned. You know, it took a long time, but what this exemplifies is that, you know, there are instances where, you know, compensation are finally adopted. So I think, you know, the discussion is not over either in, in France or in the US or, you know, in Britain or other places in the world. And I think it will be much easier for Western countries, you know, to confront the future, to confront, you know, development issues in Africa, South Asia, and also to confront, you know, the influence, the growing influence of China in this region of the world. If we start, you know, by recognizing this legacy and trying to find meaningful solutions for this kind of preparation. So I'd be amiss if I don't take a moment to talk about some of the bigger concepts within the book for just a moment here. The book's obviously about equality. And what I find remarkable within really all of your work, to be honest, is that you approach it very much as an economist. I mean, your earlier book, Capital in the 21st Century, is very much an economist's book. But you definitely view the idea of inequality, the idea of economics, as something that's also political. And in the book you write, inequality is, first of all, a social, historical, and political construction. What I found most interesting about that quote, though, is that you left out economics. It feels very deliberate when an economist leaves out economics as one of its causes. So let me ask you, is inequality an economic construction as well? Well, what I find in my historical data, you know, let me say that all of my work, you know, is based upon a very large collective, comparative, historical program of data collection, you know, income, wealth distribution. And, and so what I have found, you know, with all this work of data collection is that pure economic factors or technological factors or, you know, the level of economic development, the level of technological development cannot explain, you know, the diversity of inequality level and, and structure of inequality that we observe throughout history. So, of course, you know, economic forces matter, technology matters, but for a given set of economic forces and a given state of technology, you know, it really depends on what kind of legal regime you choose, what kind of political system, what kind of property regime, fiscal, educational system. And, you know, there are so many variations. You know, there is so much imagination by the elite sometimes, you know, to protect their position, but also by other social groups to try to undo this construction and replace them by other institutions. And there are many cases that I stress in the book which show, you know, that we should not have a sort of deterministic view of inequality, which will be based either on purely economic or technological factor, or even on purely cultural factor. Because, you know, sometimes also people say a story about inequality where it's all based on culture. So like Swedes have a very egalitarian culture and, and we are not Swedes, so we will never be as egalitarian as they are. And, you know, that's often a way to have a very conservative conclusion and say, well, look, we cannot do anything because we don't have this egalitarian culture of the Swedes. Except that what you find in history is that, you know, Swedes have not always been Swedes. In fact, until the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, Sweden was actually one of the most unequal countries in Europe. And in many ways, 
you know, one of the most unequal countries in the world, at least in the sense that the codification of inequality was particularly sophisticated. So, you know, the number of votes that you could have in Sweden until 1910 was proportional to your wealth. So it's not only that the top 20% male voters could vote, you know, which was sort of standard in 19th century Europe. But well, first in, in Sweden, it goes like this until 1910, which is pretty late in the day. But in addition, within this top 20% of male voters in terms of property, you would have between one and 100 votes, you know, depending on how wealthy you are within this top 20%. And in municipal elections, there was actually no upper bound in the number of votes you could have, so that in effect, in several dozen municipalities, you had only one individual who had more than half of the vote and who was a perfectly legal dictator. And even corporations you know, had the right to vote in Swedish municipal election of the time on the basis of their capital and in the municipality, which is something, you know, large multinational corporations today would love to have this, but, you know, they don't even dare asking for it. Sometimes they find other ways to get the same outcome, but still it makes a difference that you ask for it and you get for it. So this was Sweden until 1910. And then you had a huge, you know, mobilization by the Swedish working class, a trade union, social democratic party, you know, in a country that was quite literate for the time. And clearly, you know, the working class, the literate working class was very upset with the way, you know, the property owners in the country had sort of used their political advantage to obtain, you know, extremely favorable institutions from their viewpoint. And, you know, the social democrats took power in 1932 and put the state capacity of Sweden to the service of a completely different political project. So they would use the same register to measure property and wealth and income, but instead of distributing voting rights in proportion to those, you know, they will make people pay very high progressive tax to pay for a system of relatively equal access to health and education, which is far from being perfect, but which was better and still better than most other systems we've seen in the history of mankind. So this is you know, one of the examples that I use in my book to show why, you know, I claim, as you said, that, you know, inequality is a political construction, because in the end, you know, the elite in every country, every time period, you know, they will always say, oh, no, this is impossible. You know, this is not in American culture to have a wealth tax. This is not in Swedish culture to have more equality. This is not in French culture. This is not in Indian culture. You know, in every country, at every time period, you will always find some conservative people who will say, okay, things will never change. Things cannot change. But the reality of history is that things keep changing all the time. And they will continue in the future. And, you know, it will not always go in the right direction. But, you know, I think in the end, in the long run, you have this movement toward more uh, political equality, social equality, economic equality. And, you know, I think one of the best ways to prepare ourselves for the next steps is to look carefully at these historical uh, experiences at all these different national trajectories, you know, from which, you know, I think we can learn a great deal if we forget a little bit about uh, intellectual nationalism and you know the kind of historical amnesia which sometimes unfortunately prevents us from moving in the right direction as quickly as we could and should so a theme within all of your work is obviously the idea of inequality the idea that we need to do something to be able to i don't want to say eradicate it but alleviate it to be able to make a more equal society And in the book you write, in itself, the state is neither egalitarian nor inegalitarian. 
Everything depends on who controls it and for what purpose. And that's a really important quote. And in the context of it is that this book gives a much more optimistic view about the idea of equality, because for a significant part, you're tracing the history of how things got gradually more equal in politics and economics, even within society. Whereas in your other books, they're more focused on more recent events that have actually exacerbated inequality. But to just get at the heart of the thing that really drives you, the real theme that's at the heart of all of your work, I'd like to know, should the just state view its primary purpose to facilitate an egalitarian society? Well, I think it should view its best mission as, you know, promoting, uh, you know, the right to happiness as, uh, you know, the you know revolutionary events of the late 18th century in the U.S., in France, you know, have, have tried to promote this view of, you know, uh, governments uh, are supposed to protect, you know, the rights of everybody to happiness. So not only of uh, white male, but also, you know, uh, women, people of color, whatever your origin. So, you know, of course, it took a very long time, you know, from, you know, the, the theoretical idea of everybody's right to happiness and, you know, the real more universal approach to this, you know, covering all parts in the population. And, you know, this process, I think, is still going on. So the right to happiness, you know, include the right to access fundamental goods, what we as mankind, you know, define as fundamental goods, including access to education, access to health, access to participation. So, you know, participation to the political life, of course. So this includes electoral right. But this is, in my view, a much broader view of participation that we need to develop. It's also participation to the economic life. So, you know, the possibility to participate to the decision-making process in your company, the possibility to start a firm, develop your own project. So, you know, this is a concrete application of the universal right to happiness, which I think drives modernity. And so, you know, it's a very deep, Movement, you know, I did not create, you know, this notion. You know, this started in many different uh, national contexts. You know, more than two hundred years ago or two hundred fifty years ago, and you know, this is not over yet because if you think of, you know, something as simple as democratic equality, you know, you could say, okay, we have equal voting right today. That's it. But no, it's not enough because, you know, if you have very unequal political influence through the, you know, financing of political parties, political campaigns, through the financing of the media, of think tanks, you know, maybe one day, 50 years from now or 100 years from now, when people look at what we call electoral democracy today, they will look at it a little bit in the way we look today at, you know, Sweden 100 years ago, where only property owners could, could vote. I mean, today, of course, it's a bit better, but, you know, the fact that you have no limitation on how much private money can influence politics, you know, in, in many countries, you know, including in the U.S. today. You know, after all, one could think that the principle of, you know, one man, one woman, one vote should come with a very strong and drastic limitation on how much private money can influence politics, say, you know, everybody should have, you know, I don't know, $100 to spend on the political campaigns and political parties and think tanks or media of their choice. And, you know, that's 
what political equality means. And, you know, I think maybe one day we will come to this conclusion. And to me, the sooner the better. And we have made already some progress. You know, some countries have developed system of public political finance and, you know, uh, non-profit structure for the media, uh, sometimes, you know, very neutral uh, public media, you know, BBC or, you know. The, so, you know, there, there has been a, a movement in this direction, but this long-run movement toward the basic political equality is still going on. So to kind of wrap things up, I already mentioned that this book is much more optimistic because you take a much longer historical view. Instead of just looking at very recent events, you're looking across a history of progress towards equality, and you see a lot of progress over two centuries, maybe even three centuries throughout the book. But obviously, you also have made proposals for a number of different reforms to try to get us back on track towards having a more egalitarian society. Do you feel optimistic? that the world can get back on track. It doesn't have to be like in the next year, but do you feel optimistic that in the near future, voters in different democracies and in different parts of the world will start moving back towards creating a more egalitarian society again? I am optimistic in the long run for one simple reason, which is that, you know, the other options won't work and won't be able to solve the big challenge we have to solve, you know, the social challenges, the environmental challenges we have to solve. I think it's going to be one of the powerful forces that will make people reconsider their view about the, the economic system because, you know, there's a lot of inequality, of course, in the world about who's going to suffer from global warming. There's also a lot of inequality within each country about who is responsible for global warming. You know, you look at carbon emissions of the bottom 50% of the population in Europe or in the U.S., they have reasonable carbon emissions. I mean, they have like four or five tons per capita in, in Europe, or in the US, it's a bit more, but so this should be reduced, you know, even in Europe to our two, three tons per capita. But, you know, as compared to the top 10% who have 30 tons per capita, or the top 1%, you know, 70 tons per capita in Europe, in the US, it's even the top 10% who have 70 tons per capita. So if you come with a solution which asks everybody to reduce their emission in the same proportion with a gigantic carbon tax, proportional carbon tax or gigantic rise in energy prices everywhere, which is like the story that many economists tell to the world, you know, that's not going to work. We're going to have some gigantic yellow vest movement everywhere, you know, in, in the US, in Europe, everywhere. You know, people in the bottom 50%, you know, won't accept to make effort if you cannot guarantee that people at the top make much bigger effort. You know, they will tell you, look, you know, you have these people, you know, who go to the moon, who go to the space, you know, who, who emit, you know, thousands of tons per capita. And, and you're telling me that I'm going to have to pay more and change completely my lifestyle. So, you know, I think as the concrete consequences of global warming become uh, more and more apparent, you know, in people's life, you know, attitudes toward inequality and toward globalization in the way it is organized today, you know, with free capital flows and no collective sort of redistribution of wealth coming from, the, you know, that we, this will be questioned uh, more and more. And, you know, I think we have already started to sort of exit the era of neoliberalism, you know, following the 2008 financial crisis, following the pandemic of 2020, 2021. So for now, you know, the question is, are we going to have neo-nationalism, you know, the Trump 
kind or, you know, Le Pen kind, you know, in my country, in France. You know, I think, of course, neo-nationalism provides a sort of easier answer to the people that, you know, the kind of uh, sophisticated, uh, you know, participatory uh, socialism or, you know, system of progressive taxation, more workers' rights, more uh, democratic rights that I describe in my book. But in the end, in the long run, neo-nationalism, you know, that's not going to solve the problem of global warming. It's not going to solve the, the situation with the pandemic, you know, like the Trump experience said, you know, the, it just won't solve the problem. So we'll have to get back with, you know, more progressive universalist solution. Look at the U.S. discussion on the wealth tax. You know, this has changed so much in the past 10 years. We should remember, you know, the U.S. invented very progressive taxation in the 20th century, you know, up to 80, 90 percent, very top tax rate for decades and decades. And in fact, this was the era of maximum prosperity of the U.S. Why is it so? Well, because you don't need, you know, income gaps of one to 100 or one to 200. You know, I'm not saying you want complete equality. Maybe you need income gap of one to five, one to 10, one to 20, but one to 100, it's just not useful. And the reason why the U.S. was at maximum prosperity together with top income tax rate of 80%, 90% in the middle of the 20th century is because you know, the true source of economic prosperity in the long run is actually education and a relative equality in education. And the US, you know, in the middle of the 20th century had a huge educational advance as compared to Western Europe or Japan. And, you know, that was the true source of US prosperity. And, you know, I, I think these lessons from history, sometimes we feel we can forget them, but, you know, this is reality. And at some point, you know, reality strikes back. And this is what you know, in the end, makes me confident in the longer run. Well, thank you for taking a few minutes to talk to me. I really did enjoy your book. It's like I said, it's shorter than the other books. It's actually an incredibly quick read. Like really all of your your works, I feel like they read faster than the number of pages. You know, I always enjoy reading them. This is actually the fifth book of yours that I've read. Oh, thank you. Thanks a lot. Well, I think, you know, for those of you who don't have time, you know, to read long books, uh, you should read that one, which is indeed uh, much shorter. And I think also it forced me to clarify, uh, you know, many of my main conclusion and to, you know, emphasize indeed the optimistic dimension, which maybe in the previous books was a little bit obscured in the longer uh, development. So, so, you know, thanks a lot for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Thanks a lot. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. 
Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.